Tonight, we're going to be talking about Her Code War by Dr. Tanya Roth. Women in the military, women in the U.S. military, excuse me, 1945 to 1980. Uh, I had to say U.S. military because someone from Germany asked me if it was going to be about German women in the military. And I'm like, only if they immigrated. That's the only way it's going to happen. So Tanya Roth is going to be on with me here and shortly. Tanya, is a, she received her Ph.D. in history from Washington University. Uh, she teaches history at the Mary Institute and St. Louis Country Day School. It would help if I hit the right button. Tanya, good Hello. evening. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well, as long as I'm hitting the correct button. I just <laughs> took myself off the live stream there for a second. Uh, no, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for being on tonight, and thank you for an amazing background. Thank just, you. I try. <laughs> <laughs> that's just awesome. Uh, I know that this book came out in 2021, and uh, we're just now getting around to meeting you and me reading this book. And uh, it was an awesome read, and I really appreciate that. Before we dive into it, though, I do want to uh, ask you about your background as far as your educational background and your experience being, uh, you know, enjoying history. And where did that spark come from, Tanya? I think that started really young. Um, I have a lot of my childhood books behind me. I was, uh, um, somebody threw historical fiction in my hands way back in the day. I was probably eight or nine years old. And I mean, those are the things you notice in retrospect that, oh, I've always liked reading historical fiction. I'm still a huge fan of historical fiction. So I think that kind of sparked it. I remember really vividly, I don't know the book that I was reading, but I remember reading something in elementary school and going, wow, is this true? It was a novel, but I was really interested in, wow, did this stuff actually happen? And so I think for a long time through my childhood, it was a lot of me thinking about, well, is this a true fact in this book? Is this something that really mm. happened? And then wanting to figure out and chase it down. So I think I've always been curious. I also read a lot of detective novels, Nancy Drew, you know, <laughs> so I wanted yeah. to figure things out. Nice. Yeah, that's actually how I also got started. It was historical nice. fiction. And then I kind of rebelled against it. And I'm like, I don't want to read that. I want to read the true facts. And now I'm getting back into historical fiction. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, and I also grew up on mike hammer novels from back in the day because my grandfather awesome. used to. but yeah we're on, we're on the same wavelength yeah. when that's coming through um what about your educational background tanya what was the uh what was your education like coming up through to earn your doctoral degree so um i fell into my history major as an undergraduate it was not my first uh, pick there were a lot of picks but i ended up um I want to say, I'm going to say my parents ruined me, but they didn't ruin me. When I was five, they were in graduate school and they were writing um, master's thesis. I always assumed everybody did that. I literally, my parents never, ever pressured me, but I just remember getting to college and being like, yeah, I'm going to write a thesis. Um, nice. And found out that's not really what most people do. <laughs> but um, University of Missouri, Columbia did have that as an option. I was an English major but I didn't have the grades. You had to be an honors student in the English department in order to do that. But I had the grades for the history department. They're like, yeah, just take a seminar. So um, I took the only thing that sounded interesting, which was gender in World War I. Um, I don't remember what else they offered. I don't even know. And that was a European-centered course. It just happened to be, well, that sounds good. I'll take that one. <laughs> and it yeah. kind of fell me into everything. I was really fortunate to have a number of really passionate professors at Mizzou, uh, as, as it's known, um, mm -hmm. 
I did a lot of European history, um, but like I had a really important course on gender, race, and American popular culture, which completely changed my understanding of like everything around me that I'd grown up seeing and understanding. And I had no exposure to gender history or LGBTQ history or any of that. Um, and I was just fascinated. And I, I thought that was it. I thought I'd get a PhD in English and it turned out I was way more interested in history. So um, moved to St. Louis and took a chance. Uh, very fortunate Washington University in St. Louis is right here. Excellent graduate program, fully funded for six years at the time. I'm not sure how that's changed now. Um, but uh, I was very fortunate to, to get into that program. I came in saying, yeah, I want to study women in war, women in the military, something like that. So I just kind of had that hint that stayed with me from my World War One and gender seminar that I just mm. couldn't let go of. I was fascinated. Wow. That's, that's awesome. When I was going through grad school, one of the books I liked was actually a gender history of the Spanish-American War. So that, it, I forget. And, and I'm a terrible historian because I forget the title. I <laughs> we, that with titles too. <laughs> yeah, we, we've read so much. I'm like, which one was it? I don't. Because people ask me, what, who wrote it? I'm like, don't, don't ask me that. Right. I'm like, know. I can tell you the cover, and that's about right. it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you the cover. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, but speaking of covers, I like this cover, and a couple I of people. I love this cover. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, a couple of people were like, wow, that is a really cool cover. I, I'm really hoping that UNC wins some awards for that cover because it's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> that, that image on the cover is from a 1970s Marine recruiting ad on the National Archives website. Oh, yeah. Um, and in its original context, I don't even think that, I mean, it's a really bland 1970s ad. And my editor was like, we could do something with that. I was like, I trust you. And it's <laughs> it's just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> It turned out to be amazing. I love the use yeah. of the negative space and everything for the so face, beautiful. facial features and stuff. It's just really awesome. Uh, and and I've had a couple of people in on Twitter say, "Wow, that's a really cool cover." And you know, yeah. I think someone <laughs> saw my my banner for tonight and they thought I did that for the banner. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I can only add text. That's all I can do. Uh, but this is out in both uh, hardback and paperback now. It is. Yeah. And everyone, the the uh, link or the link is in the chat, but the code to get 40% off is floating around down there under, underneath us right now. Uh, Tanya, where did the idea to come up with, or where was the idea originally for this book? Uh, since you had done a kind of European centric look at gender in the first world war, what was the, the difference in this method? This one, I, again, I kind of fell into, I am a person who I think I fall into a lot of things because I, I'd like to say I don't have a lot of pre, maybe, maybe the fact I didn't have a lot of background in some of this, like I, I didn't really have a sense in my head of here's the narrative of women's history in the 20th century. I just had like little bits of knowledge here and there. And I, I loved the World War One stuff. I thought it was fascinating. I didn't, I don't even think I really understood distinctions between US historian and European historian, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, I did a background of world history as well. So I kind of just like everything. Um, but uh, there was a Cold War undergrad course, upper level undergrad course, my first semester at grad school. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should take that. That fits in the time frame that I'm interested in. I know I like 20th century. And of course, as a graduate student, I had to do something more than the undergrads. 
And that fall, this was like the fall of 2005, I think, um, the Women's Memorial in Washington, D.C. had just put out their book, A Defense Weapon Known to Be of Value, about women in the Korean War era. Okay. And I, that was, it had just come out. I was incredibly lucky. And I was like, oh, this is great. Right. I knew there was women in World War II. I had a little bit of knowledge about that and some context there. But I also had the sense that, well, everybody does World War II, which is not true, but I think growing up in the end of the 20th century, early 2000s, when you know the greatest generation, very interested in that. My grandfathers both fought in the war, but I was I was like, what's the stuff I don't know about? Um, and that's where I think it honestly hit me right there was that book was, oh, hmm. hey, there's some stuff that happens after World War II and, and nobody else was talking about it. I'm like, well, this is interesting. Let's see what I can do with this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Speaking of, of World War II, it's amazing how much to me, and you go into detail in the book, how much Eisenhower's involved in this. Because when we think World War II, we think Eisenhower and, and yes. now like commander. And uh, obviously he sees so many women in uniform at that time doing what they were doing. I wondered what he thought afterwards. And you go into that. Yeah, that was something that was not in my dissertation because a lot of this came out of the dissertation as so many first books do for historians, but um, I didn't have that in my dissertation. I went straight to the legislation, the 1948 Women's Armed Services Integration Act. But for the book, I thought, well, wait, hold on, there's gotta be something. Eisenhower wrote a little book right after the end of the war where he talks about his time in Europe and North Africa and has some really great passages about his experiences working with women. I went, oh, there we go. There you are. <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. Yeah, that was I, I love that piece. I was also really fortunate to do research at the Eisenhower Presidential Library out in Abilene. Right. They're fantastic people. It's been a long time since I was there, but that was a wonderful week long adventure. Like they're like, we'll get you a bike to ride. If you need a bike to ride, do you need anything else? What other information can we get you? Um, stayed at a house that was a bed and breakfast um, where nice. the original owners had a kid who was friends with Eisenhower growing up. It was just this cool experience to get to go experience Eisenhower. And so I'm, I'm kind of fond of him. <laughs> yeah. Very small town kind of feel with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What what were some of your other research methods, Tanya, with this, other than going to that specific location? What were some other places you went to? Pretty much scouring everything I could. A lot of presidential libraries. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and and they would very much tell me, well, we don't have stuff on women in the military. And I would say, yes, well, you have this information over here. Um, the Lyndon Johnson Library had a fair amount. The Kennedy Library had some interesting materials as well. But um, everybody from Eisenhower... The Nixon Library wasn't around at the time, although I did use some materials there. I didn't get to the Carter Library, but every presidential library from Eisenhower, oh, Truman, sorry, Truman through, we'll say Nixon, um, I hit their libraries. Um, the Women's Memorial in Washington, D.C. was such an invaluable resource. Um, but I also uh, did interviews with a number of female veterans who I was really lucky to get in contact with. Um, I was editing the HNET email listserv H Minerva while I was in graduate school. And it's a mm -hmm. list that's dedicated to women in war, women in the military. So that became one way to find connections and then um, national organizations. Um, and there's a local branch in St. Louis where I live. So I was able to find a number of people who were like, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you and tell you my experiences. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. that that's Those oral histories are just so necessary you know they're so rich <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. Uh, what were there any thing? Uh, how should I say this? Were there any kind of hiccups along the way where it was kind of like you hit a brick wall or the stuff that you wished were there wasn't there? You know, what, what were some of the challenges you faced in the research process? Yeah. Um, there's definitely a few. One of the things that stands out to me right now, especially thinking about the recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, is very hard to find information as I was looking at the time about service women and abortions. There's a little bit of information. There's some um, stuff that happens and I talk about in the book, um, but I, it would have been really interesting to get some more insights. Uh, at one point I found a document that said, well, we don't know how many women have had abortions in the military, but um, so there's this whole area of women's reproductive health in the military that at the time, it, you know, if I were looking now, I know there's some great scholars who are doing some work on that. They've probably found things that I might have missed. But I remember thinking, oh, if I could just find this, how interesting would it be? Um, but also at the time I was looking at that material, I think it was one of those topics that started looming larger as I spent more time with the material and um, didn't quite wasn't able to get back to the archives in a way where I might have been able to go, where's this thing right here? Um, but there's there's so many things. The National Archives in Washington, D.C. and um, uh, College Park, Maryland, especially College Park, hundreds of thousands of materials. And I know I only scratched the surface and I'm sure there are things in there that I that I completely missed or didn't know how to find. Um, but there's just so much like it's a topic that for a long time, I think people said, well, there's nothing here. But once you start looking, there really is quite a lot of material. And then it's just a matter of finding a way to get through it all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the, the universal thing with research, right? Sometimes it's just it's not there or it's not the right time to find it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That the one sentence that I really uh, that really hit me in the book had to do with the military as a microcosm of the larger society like societal norms. And, yeah. and that, that was like, I've studied military history for years and I never even like, that was the light bulb moment for me where I'm like, wow, now that makes total sense. And it was just right there. Do you think a lot of people don't realize that? Or do you think that that's kind of like one of those things where we often see the military as separate from the social entity and that plays a, a game with us in that way as researchers and as just civilians? I, yeah, I think it's kind of a little of both. I, I kind of wonder if um, the permanent addition of women in the 1940s, even though it's such small numbers, whether that starts making it like, oh, when we actually start looking at the people in it and the way they're setting up women's service, that that makes us pay a little more attention and go, oh, they're mimicking what happens here. I, so I don't know whether maybe the bringing the women in did some of that, but I do think that we just... Um, so much of traditional military history has been written operationally and talking about you know, the battles and the weapons. And um, I teach high school and it's still more common for students to come in and be like, oh, let me tell you about these planes. I cannot tell you about a single military plane or tank or gun. It's, it's just not where my information is. But, um, but there's so many more people now working on the people aspect of who's in the military and what does this look like and how these dynamics work. And so I do think it, it ends up being, um, it's separate, but it's a place where so many of our social ideas play out. Mm -hmm. It kind of plays into popular culture as well. And one yeah. of the wild things that I had never heard about till I read your book was, and I'd love for you to, to touch on for my audience, is the uh, 1952 Miss America pageant. 
I have never heard this before. <laughs> and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, this my gosh. I so love I'd love to hear more about this. So this comes in with a line of my research that I'm, I'm personally very fond of. Um, one of the later chapters in the book is, um, I'm going to check my number because I don't remember the numbers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, chapter seven about the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services, um, Dakowitz. I'm, I, I'm kind of obsessed with Dakowitz, and it may not sound related, but that's how I found out about the 1952 Miss America pageant. Um, in the early 50s, this committee gets formed by the Assistant Secretary of Defense, still exists today, still focuses on issues related to women's service. Um, and there are in the National Archives and many other places, you'll find Dakowitz scrapbooks that were kept by individual members and then ended up in the National Archives. So imagine like a mid 20th century scrapbook with black pages and those little black corners that hold the photographs mm -hmm. down and things like that. Yep. And somebody had put together all these newspaper clippings about things that Dakowitz did. And I opened the box and there was this huge scrapbook and it said Miss America pageants. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I had yeah. looked at um, in the National Archives, there are a bunch of recruiting journals, which were like newsletters sent to recruiters about recruiting opportunities and things they could pull on in popular culture to get people's attention. But this was very different. This was looking at what was Dakowitz doing to help promote women's service. And one of the early ideas they had was, well, we got to go where the women are. And women are in the Miss America pageant. I don't think they were trying to recruit the Miss America contestants themselves, right? right. They're really there because they figured that people are going to come and they're looking to these young women in the pageant as the epitome of American womanhood. Like here are women who during World War II were doing community service, who had that look, that glamorous um, association of you know everything it might mean to have your hair and your makeup and your poise and, and to know what it was to be an American woman. And so they, they try to capitalize on that. They bring recruiters from each of the women's services to the pageant. Um, I don't know a whole lot about what they did at the pageant, but my understanding is they were probably manning a booth with um, brochures and talking to young women. Um, right. I believe they're also in the parade. And that was the first year that we have a grand marshal <laughs> for the Miss America parade. And it is Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coming. It's before she's really hit it. Um, right. And yeah. And that leads to my favorite moment, which um, the photograph is available online. You can find it. But there's a few articles in, in that scrapbook that said, so here's this photograph of Marilyn Monroe with four service women behind her. And somebody in the army office saw that photograph and was like, nope, get rid of it. Because they thought that Marilyn's dress was too low cut. Wow. And by our standards, it doesn't look that way at all. But oh, yeah. they're looking at, you know, the women in the uniforms are up to here, and Marilyn's <laughs> a little lower. Right. Right. And, a little. Uh, a little lower. And it just gets all this press. Um, I was able to chase down a few different things related to it, like Marilyn a few years later being like, I didn't see what was wrong with it. Um, <laughs> so, right. uh, but the image of her from the Miss America parade, um, which you can find the footage on YouTube and see her silently waving to the crowds. Um, some of that footage then was the cover of the first Playboy issue a year mm. later. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that army guy was a little prescient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently. <laughs> apparently. That that kind of Miss America pageant, especially the 1950s, and, and this idea of uh, service and 
womanhood in the American sense. It's still a very white centric middle class way of looking at womanhood or what yeah. uh, it's it's very leave it to beaver still it is. at that yeah. time. Yeah, I I'm I I wonder I haven't found stuff, but it would have been interesting to see whether you ever had some of that appearing on early television, for example, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't think we ever got well. Lucy was married on I Love Lucy, so we were never going to have Lucy go join the military. But um, that, there's definitely movies that portray that. And it is. It's very much, um, I think, because all the leadership in the military at the time is white, predominantly male. All the women who have leadership roles are also white. Um, and in the government, it's also politicians who are basically all white and mostly male. So they're going with the image that they're thinking of, their daughters, their granddaughters, their sisters, um, and they, they they don't really get challenged to think of this any other way. Um, but Truman desegregate, uh, sorry. Yes, Truman, sorry. I'm All of a sudden my brain goes between Truman and Eisenhower and things are mixing okay. up. Because uh, Eisenhower was still a general and Truman's the one who was president. <laughs> Because <laughs> Eisenhower so involved, as we were talking about. Yeah. Um, Truman desegregates the military six weeks after Congress decides that women can be in the military. Um, mm -hmm. So the women Marines and the Women's Air Force uh, are integrated well before the men's services and even the Army and the Navy as well. So we look at the men's services to see where a lot of the challenges of desegregation play out. But the women's services were doing it well before mm -hmm. the rest of the, of the military. Mm -hmm. Did the non-white service women see that as a way to uh, try to be seen as more, uh, how should I say, it? like American, really? Because because you see a lot of African-American men going in the First World War and they're like, this is where we can prove that we are worthy of equality. And and, and as you yeah. begin the Second World War, and then still, we still need the civil rights movement and we're still having questions today about equality. Uh, do women in the post Second World War era who are from minority communities, there may not be many, but do they see that as a, a, a step forward for them to try to make a difference? I think so. Um, there's definitely the none of these women tend to see themselves as activists. So there's they're not consciously or they're, they're not I haven't found evidence of them talking about like, oh, yeah, I joined because I wanted to um, make a difference in civil rights. But I think it is part of that tradition that they're very aware, um, you know, women who come of age after World War II to join the military who are probably, you know, 18, 19, 20 would have grown up with the double V rhetoric of World War II. They'd be very aware of what the correlation between military service and citizenship is um, for uh, many African-Americans. Um, if nothing else, it's certainly perceived of as a really great place to have a job. So by the early 1960s, Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine are printing articles saying, look, here's this high-ranking woman who's an African-American woman, and here's all the different opportunities that came to her. Um, what I would love to get more information on, and I think as a white woman, this is where, um, first of all, my oral history methods, when I did, did them, not that they're good, right? But I was first time out of the gate, I know a whole lot more now. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I don't, I did not ask the questions, and I did not have 
a wide enough range of service women who were minority women who can talk about those experiences. So I'm hoping that we get some more researchers in the next few years who can go talk to those women and perhaps coming from a different racial identity and different background, be able to get us more information because I think that's a vitally important part of Cold War history that we don't yet have. But from what I can tell, yes, I do think that for many women, at least economic opportunity, but also I think that citizenship connection too. Mm -hmm. we, we brought up Marilyn Monroe earlier, and that leads me to cinema and movies. We can kind of hinted to, towards TV and, and popular culture with Lucy, but they, they really tried to uh, instill that into cinema as well, right? Where they're like, yeah. they're trying to showcase a woman on screen in uniform to be the uh, the ideal powerful woman of that time, what they would consider powerful yeah. woman at that time. Yes. They? There's two movies in the 1950s that really stand out. Um, Never Wave It a Whack, I think is probably the most, mm. the more popular of the two. Not that everybody's seen it today, but I think it's the one that, you might see in passing more if you're reading about um, 1950s theater for, or cinema, for example. And that one takes more of a comedic approach. Um, there's more, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh wait, can women do this? And I don't think, um, it's, it's not as much a serious film, but neither is Skirts Ahoy. I kind of like Skirts Ahoy a whole lot. Um, I didn't think I would. Like watching 1950s movies about the military, I was like, all right, what's going to go on here? Because I also yeah. watched um, Private Benjamin from in the early 80s with Goldie Hawn. And I oh, would yeah. say that if you've seen Private Benjamin, Never Wave It a Whack has some overlap with it, although Private Benjamin goes a little more... Um, Private Benjamin's playing for the jokes a little bit more. <laughs> Mm. You know what I mean? But there's yeah. still that element. So never wave it a whack. The woman who joins the military um, does it on a lark and uh, she doesn't know how to do anything. And she's one of those people who has spent her whole life being served and has never lifted a finger. And now she has to make her bunk and do this. So it portrays military life very well. It's just um, also <laughs> the main character. Not so great. But Skirts Ahoy focuses on the Navy and it's got some really great lyrics and scenes that really get at hey here's what it means to be a woman joining the military um mm. that uh i don't think we, we expect but all of them really showing here's these women very professional very put together you can do this too and have a great time mm -hmm. did we have a, a with that kind of popular culture movement from the 52 miss america film and, and so forth did we have kind of a a down turn in that during the Vietnam era like we do with some other works because we see there's just like this downturn especially in the late 60s of military uh movies involving women it seemed it seemed like it was more John Wayne than anything else I think you're right I think that um they, they never really do a whole lot like Hollywood doesn't get too enamored of women in the military they kind of remain side plots of World War II movie feet like if you're, if, there's still movies being made about World War II right so those you get those appearances that are kind of the little bitty glimpse ones um but I think that the Vietnam War definitely, by that time, the focus is all on the draft. It's focused on the men who are fighting there, um, probably a little more, more nurses. So I think the closest thing we get is mm. MASH um, and right. the nurses of the 4077. Uh, um, love that show. <laughs> and since I kept, I didn't do anything with nurses in my book because of um, practical reasons, it's a lot of field to cover. Um, yeah. But I think that's the closest thing we get is really, 
okay, the nurses, because they're, um, they're going to be the majority of the women who go to Vietnam, mm -hmm. be the nurses. No, I appreciate that fact about the book, Tony, because far too often, especially when I talk to other male military historians, they're, they're kind of like, oh yeah, the women were nurses. And it's like, they did so much more than that. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't just nursing. And I appreciate the fact that it was a component in your research, but it wasn't the plethora of- Right. Yeah. And I think that came out of my um, undergraduate World War One stuff because all my World War One stuff was women as nurses because in World War One, that's the majority of what women are doing, even if they're volunteering. Um, and in World War One, it's many women who are not professionals. They get six weeks first aid training and then they're off to do whatever they can. But by the time we get to Korea and Vietnam, um, before the Women's Armed Services Integration Act of 1948, we've got Congress also setting up the Army Navy Nurse Act and saying, yes, here are the guidelines to have women, um, the Army Nurse Corps, basically all women, the Navy Nurse Corps, all women. Their bigger fights in those components is about letting men come in in the, in the Cold War, because that's an entirely different conversation, to bring men into a women-dominated area. Um, so there's certainly women in my book who are in medical professions, but the professional nurses, um, like that's excellent. There's been excellent work done on that by Kara Vick um, hmm. and others. So I was like, I'll just let them keep, <laughs> keep that. There's enough separation. That's their lane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Uh, when, when we talk about those components and we talk about the microcosm of the larger society, there are times where it seems like it breaks free from those microcosms because it kind of feels like this is the first equal pay for equal work for, for, for people who are doing the same job, but have yeah. different gender identities. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, that that's in some ways really huge and in some ways maybe not because it is such a microcosm, but also like here's women making equal pay and they're literally going, here's the same we're at the same rank and if you are at this rank and you're a man and you're at this rank and you're a woman it's the same pay um and we're classifying our jobs really um really in a really set structure and certainly there are jobs that women can't access so they're not accessing hazard pay combat pay and those other benefits that might make the money go higher for men right. and there's certainly a whole lifestyle that goes with it like your housing and your uniforms and other things but to have a structure that says we're not going to take gender into account for the base pay rate, um, it, it can be done. I think maybe that's one of the messages we should take away is it can be done. Um, and that's something that we haven't done as well getting at outside of the military. Mm -hmm. Yeah, still some work to do yeah. there on that front. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, the, the big uh, elephant in the room for me when I cracked open this book was I remember uh, talking with some World War II vets and they were, you know, they were obviously set in their ways. They were in their 80s and, and uh, you know, they had their mindset on how things were back in those days and, and Korean War vets the same way. And they all would say, you know, I would ask them about, hey, did you ever see any wax or Women's Army Corps members or anything like that? And they would always be like, yeah, they're a bunch of lesbians. So when I opened this book, I was like, let's see the gender, yes. the, 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 the sexual history of these women, because far too often there's this kind of umbrella uh, thing. That, well, if a woman wants to do that job, she must be this way or that way or whatever the case may be. Uh, what was it like doing that research on those kind of studies? Because 
uh, there are certain people who will always be set in that mindset because their grandfather told them that or, or something along that line. That was um, in, in oral history interviews, um, several oral history interviews that I did with women who, um, to my knowledge, are straight, but I don't always know their sexual identity. Um, regardless, they said, oh, yeah, I was told that if you went in the military, you were either a slut or a uh, uh, or lesbian in, in their words like that was the way they got described um and i think that was a really common conception that just across the board that that was the reputation um and so i think it's interesting to think about because we don't know for sure because there were no records how many women in the military did identify as lesbian or bisexual um or transgender those that information comes a little later towards the end of my period um but certainly it's something the military is thinking about it's something that women in the military are thinking about um there's some excellent work done about how World War II, by Alan Marube's book on World War II as a coming out experience, because for men and women, military service provides the space where, you know, small town maybe, you've only known a few people, or even a big city, here all of a sudden, whether you're, uh, whether you're a gay man or you're a lesbian, you've got opportunities where you can meet others who may be like you in a way that you never had before. Um, so there are opportunities for people who do identify as lesbian or gay. Um, so it does become a space for many women who are lesbian to say, yeah, this is where I want to be. The challenge is that the military is like, we don't want you. And they mean it really seriously. So we get the witch hunts in the 1950s um, and um, Margot Kennedy, her book, where she looks at um, how the United States has structured citizenship and defined it. She was the first one to go find the homosexuality discharge files that I use in one of my chapters to talk about and they are they're remarkable to look at they're they're heartbreaking to read um you cannot tell from looking at these whether any of these women were lesbians or not um but the lengths to which people went to accuse other people in these several witch hunts that happened in the 50s or um the lengths to which the government tried to prosecute this lie detector test bringing in psychologists they're really seeing homosexuality as a disease that they have to root out and take care of but it's not a disease and they don't know how to how to address it even if it were. Um, right. So they're telling women that, you know, if you will confess and name, it's sort of like a communist witch hunt. Name I was going to say, it's way. like the Red Scare. It really is. Um, so by the time you get to the mid fifties, there's mm -hmm. enough of people in power who say, you know, this probably doesn't look good for us. We probably shouldn't do any witch hunts. Um, so if you, if you, if there's a woman who's clearly in violation, she needs to go. Um, but it's not going to be something that they're trying to search for. So there's a number of women who do keep themselves in the closet as they serve, or there's, I'm certain we have a number of cases where we have women who are out to some degree while they're serving and they just know who should know about it and who shouldn't. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's an important, it's an important topic in this time period until, um, until we get to don't ask, don't tell, and then the repeal of that in 2011, it's, it's a big, big issue. Yeah, the the whole idea surrounding sexual health also was wild because the army or, or the military in general. Uh, sorry, I'm from an army family, so I usually right. uh, mil, uh, the military in general really acts like, well, the guys are going to do it anyway, so we're just going to tell them how to do it safely. The women should not be doing it at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one thing where I'm like, wow, we, we've yeah. really got to come to terms with this, don't we?
Yeah. And I have to admit, I didn't go looking to see if there were a lot of cases of women who were who were um, kicked out because of sexual behavior. Um, mm -hmm. I think we probably have a few. I'm sure I have a file somewhere and probably someone doing that work be like, hey, wait, I know. Um, so I'm yeah. sure it, it happened. But I think more that we get the best evidence you get that a woman is sexually active is if she gets pregnant. And that's where the military drew the line. You're pregnant, you're out of the military, they're presuming that you're married, and in which case they're like, congratulations, go raise your family. Um, right. But if it's a woman who's not married, that's going to be a whole nother, well, now you're being discharged because you were breaking moral behavior mm -hmm. guidelines. Right. You're being judged differently. Exactly. Than, than your male counterpart is. Or your male comrade is yeah. in that case, you know. Uh, that that was one thing that I've I've heard a lot about. Where uh, some some women who I talked to who served during the Cold War era were were talking about. Well, if you did this, you're kicked out immediately. And then in your book, there were there were kind of like instances where that wasn't necessarily true, but it's not being told that it's not true. Exactly. I think a lot of situational things that the guidelines say one thing, like. Guidelines say as soon as you're pregnant, you're out, or if this happens, you're out. But I think it so much also depends on those relationships that you have with your commanding officer and the people that you work with directly and who's in charge and maybe what manpower needs are at the time too. Um, so many variations. I, I, there was um, a special issue. I cannot remember the journal um, that I got to look at a couple years ago that focused on World War II. And I remember reading a really great article about two nurses two case studies of nurses who were pregnant in World War II, and one of them was out like that, and the other one, her commanding officer was like, no, no, you can stay as long as you need to. So that was a moment where I went, oh, yeah, okay. I can see how those more immediate relationships you have might control more of whether you're going to get the boot today or tomorrow. Right. As, as these uh, years roll on until the end of this era of, of your book is concerned, we start to see this weird flip of where now women need men to come in and do some of the work to support the system that they are in charge of. Uh, yeah. I never knew that. And I was like, wow, uh, what kind of a, what I, in my mind, I'm like, okay, what kind of soldier or officer or whatever decides I'm going to volunteer over here when, when women are seen as uh, a feminine service branch the men who kind of are like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. Yes. Help. What was, what was the research like on that topic? Cause I had never known this at all. And I'll be honest, that kind of came in towards the end for me. I was, um, because um, you might be thinking of the part in the conclusion where I talk about Mildred Bailey integrating her staff yeah. with men coming in. Yeah. Um, and that's where I, I honestly, I was rereading her oral history transcript because uh, a lot of the early female generals have some really great oral history transcripts. Some of them have multiple oral histories that they did and they're all fascinating. But of course, you know, when you're doing a project like this over time, the things that you look for the first read through of a transcript are going to look a lot of different than later. And right. I stumbled onto this. I was like, wait a second, to, never thought about this because they did have at the time um, by the 70s, you've got the Women's Army Corps has their own headquarters in Alabama at Fort McClellan. So imagine I. I my perception of it was this is an all-female enclave, right? It's the Women's right. Army Corps Training Center. Um, I don't know how many men were actually working there. There must have been some. Um, but when she integrates her office and that question of bringing a man in and 
and yeah, military leaders are like, what man's going to want to work with a bunch of women? <laughs> uh, I had not thought about that. And then I think because they then get rid of the women's services so quickly after that and erase those formal boundaries, mm-hmm. that it, it kind of makes it a moot point. But the Women's Army Corps was definitely a space where you could see that play out a little bit more, I think. Um, it's fascinating. I'd love to know who that guy was and if he did an oral history and see what he thought about it, <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would love to. I hope there's an oral history out there. I hope so. On, on that, because that would be just amazing to to read through. Yeah. Um, when you were when you're going through all of your your work and and you know piecing this all together, this large puzzle together, what was like the most inspiring thing you got out of it? I already asked what the most challenging research thing is. What was the most inspiring thing that you've located in your research that was like, wow, I didn't know that, but that was an amazing thing, amazing moment. I I do think as a process part of it, I do think the oral histories really became that for me. Um, I was not planning to do oral histories for this project originally. I would have been content going to the archives, but I mentioned earlier, I did another field in world history on the side um, and I teach a lot of world history today. And I had a really great mentor who taught African history in graduate school. And he said to me, Tanya, you're talking about people who are still alive. Why are you not interviewing them? He's like, I'm an African historian. We talk to people because that's where our history is. And I went, okay, I guess I'll do it. Because I have this thing where I get scared to death, but I love doing it once I get into it. You know, you hate um, the initial part of it. It's the initial part. And also, yeah. I don't have a military background. My, again, my grandfathers both served, but they were long dead by this point. My father was not in the Vietnam War. I don't have direct connections. So I didn't know if they'd take me seriously or what would happen. But that, I think, um, you know, I would finish a conversation. I'd be like, whoa, this is so cool because it might have confirmed pieces for me, but it also much of the time gave me new insights into jobs and experiences and just um, really, it really did make it come alive. Uh, and then I had stuff I could go back to the archives and compare the information and go, okay, like most women I talked to said, oh yeah, if you got married, you had to leave. Not true. But you don't in an interview say to anybody, yeah, no, you're wrong, because it doesn't matter. The truth is that was the perception that they had that you had to leave when you got married. And that perception is really powerful for telling me as a historian something about what the military was like. Mm -hmm. So I loved that. And then also anytime I opened up something and found like like the Marilyn Monroe story or um, any yeah. number of oral histories where people are talking about this thing that happened. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what what was that process like for you to do your initial oral histories? Because you are so nervous. Yeah, a lot of us are so nervous asking, you know, right. we ask you about yeah. your service or could we ask you about your time in this factory or whatever the case may be, whoever we're interviewing. Sometimes it's hard just to ask because... We, we a lot of us historians are kind of timid. We're introverts, and we're just yeah. like, I don't want to bother you. Uh, so, exactly. what was it like? What was it like overcoming that kind of hurdle where it's like, okay, I I might be uncomfortable doing this, but I should do it. Yeah, there was um, I definitely. <laughs> So if you go on the Library of Congress website, the Veterans History Project, and you do a search for Tanya Roth, you'll find transcripts of some interviews that I did, or you can also find the recordings. You can listen to every single misstep I made. <laughs> it's a lot of nervous laughter for me and like rephrasing questions and um, trying to edge into it cautiously. Uh, those are mostly um, 
I think in particular the ones I did on the telephone with a recording device. Um, but I think one of the best parts was um, I had a few friends who, like a really good friend of mine in graduate school, both her parents were in the Navy. Like they met in, in Hawaii in the Navy in the 70s. She's like, you want to interview my parents? I'm like, yeah, that was probably one of the best because I had the report with her, with their daughter and I talked to the mom and I talked to the, I talked to both of them together. And that was like, oh, cool. So anything that came through a personal connection, another good friend in grad school, her mother-in-law had served. Oh, great. Here's another one. It just sort of had a few people come out of the woodwork. Those helped gain me comfort with it. And then um, when I found the local VFW, um, the women's post here, I got to go out with one of their members and that helps so much. I think that helped give me my confidence that I was doing it right. Mm -hmm. I knew what I was doing. And just the women I spoke to were just all so gracious and kind and they understood that I was like, I'm just going to mess this up and thank you for bearing with me. And it was, it was great. And I think that really helped a lot. Right. So you mentioned something that was going back to the idea of uh women's quote duties in the american society you mentioned something there that i had wanted to bring up and i didn't know when i should but it's the idea of some women are being told this is a way to find a proper man exactly yes. and, and that and your friend's parents are like that maybe she didn't think of that going in right. but the overall quote scheme of the situation in in the uh lead up to try to get recruits and recruiting processes hey you could find your ideal mate this way too as far as a woman finding a woman finding a man exactly that was definitely something that recruiters are talking about and um, i think for my friend's parents i think you're right that wasn't their intention right. just happened to be for them a side benefit but yeah you've got small numbers of women and a lot of men so odds are pretty good if you're a woman and not every not all of them marry but um right. but yeah it's definitely that's that's what they've they posture this as is like you can't be married to come into the service after world war ii the exception is um if you served in world war ii and then you got married and you wanted to come back and you had no kids that's fine but if you had no prior service you were not going to be a married woman who comes in they're like no 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 it's time to have children <laughs> but um but there there are a number of women some of the highest ranking women um are married never have children or maybe they're not married and they just stay in for for decades um mm -hmm. like general mildred bailey her husband passes away in the 60s but he was also a military vet himself they, they never had children and she ended up serving for decades mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah it becomes a great place um to, to find somebody potentially <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The the book uh, leads into 1980, but has that progression forward, or at least a forward thought of where uh, women in the military have gone and are going to this day. How do you think those uh, those women in the in the 50s and 60s or, or just the post -World, World War Two era have really helped to open doors for the women today who who are going into the military because now more women are serving than ever proportionately. Yeah. I, th I think it's huge. I think that, um, yes, I acknowledge we had relatively small numbers in the 50s and the 60s, and it starts to shift in the 70s. And I recognize that women technically weren't in combat. Women were in combat in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, but weren't officially allowed to go into combat arms until recently, right? 
Um, I think all these little things that happened since 1948 all have a cumulative effect. So um, these women who come in in the 50s and the 60s are responding to the restrictions that are being given to them. And for many of the women, the setup the military offers is fine. They're okay with the pay. They're not going to sit there and go, wait, why can't I have this job and this pay over here? There'll be some that do, but a lot of the women are looking for a place to go and they want an opportunity. And it's for a lot of them better than they'll get at home or they can't afford college. And um, the GI Bill is not an option if you're a young unmarried woman who didn't serve in World War II, right? right. Um, those opportunities. But I think as we see that cumulative effect, women start speaking up and saying, wait, hold on, this regulation is not working for me. Hold on, this problem here, we have issues and we get these slow and steady changes that over time I think get us to those doors opening that you get to a place where okay wait we've got women who are not officially in combat but they're serving in combat we have to recognize that um so I think that they're all paving that way a number of the women who served in the 50s and 60s would probably some of them did say and a lot of them might say that oh no we weren't in combat <laughs> that wasn't what we were there to do but they also deeply respect the women who do that today um they they started opening the doors that that got us to where we are now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Tanya, I appreciate you coming on this evening and speaking <laughs> with me. And I'm going to show this book cover again because it's just so fantastic. So beautiful, I love it's so it. So awesome. <laughs> it's 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 simple, but it's awesome. You know, where it's like it's just you know you got your colors going on, but it's just that that is an amazing cover. I love it. I love it. So, her Cold War women in the U.S. military, 1945-1980. Tonya, thank you so much for coming on tonight and talking about your book. It was awesome. I love getting a chance to tell these women's stories. So yes, more of them needs to be told. Yes. Yeah. So if you know a woman in your life who served and you don't know their story, go talk to them, find out what you can, and, and let's keep the story going. <laughs> <laughs>